So, the, the, uh, the, the subject I was given um, this morning was to preach on reconciliation, the cost. The cost of reconciliation. And I was um, given the, uh, one of the Gethsemane passages. So, this is, this is actually the end of our whole series we've been doing on reconciliation. I looked it up on our website because I've, I've missed some of them. It's, we've looked at reconciliation hinges on the cross. We've looked at reconciliation is doing the Father's work. We've looked at reconciliation is reaching across barriers to embrace the other. Uh, reconcili- reconciliation um, is about loving your enemies. And reconciliation is not about justice. And now we come to reconciliation, the cost. And if finishing off a whole series like this isn't daunting enough, we actually come this morning truly to holy ground, hallowed ground, as we come into that garden where we see Jesus struggling with the cost of the cross in a way that we don't really see anywhere else. We see his anguish. We see his fight to submit to the Father's will. So because it is such a holy subject, let's, I, I just have to bring us again in prayer to, uh, to prepare for this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we are sinners. You are the transcendent Holy One, the thrice Holy One, holy, 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 exalted in the heavens above, transcendent over all of creation, greater than the whole cosmos. You are the Great One, perfect in purity, light with no shadow, and yet we come to you this morning. We come to think about something that what it cost you to save us. And Lord, we just pray that our responses in our heart will be acceptable to you. Lord, that we won't approach this inappropriately, that we won't think in wrong ways. Lord, our hearts are not as pure as they should be. And Lord, we lament it and we pray, Lord, keep us therefore from sinning. Because of our propensity of heart, Lord, have mercy upon us that we would not sin this morning. Lord, and give me words to be able to explore and teach on this holy subject without trampling all over it in in terrible and awful ways. Lord, We pray that you will be here, that you will be working in us, that what happens here this morning, holy God, will be acceptable to you. Lord, come and and be amongst us. Come with your Holy Spirit and work in our hearts. Come and stir us up so that we wouldn't be lethargic or indifferent. Come and do what is pleasing to you through this subject this morning, we pray. Lord, come and, and act, for we long to have an encounter with the living God. 
Come, we pray. Come, pour out your spirit. Amen. Right. <clears throat> now, as most of you, I'm sure, know, Helen, my wife, likes to write stories. And uh, this is one she wrote a few years back, which um, I have permission to read to you. I will try to do it as, uh, as best I can. It's called Holy Ground. He knows joy to be his destiny. The night hangs around him damply. The myrtle trees are heavy with fragrance. Sweat and tears blend on his tongue to season his whispered prayers. Gethsemane, garden of the olive press, is silent witness to the crushing of the Son of God. Strong fingers claw the earth. His head shakes insistently. Avron de Bishmaya, Avon, Avon, Father in heaven, Father, Father. He knows joy to be his destiny, but he cannot find it. Before him are two doors. Seated between them, smug on the pivot of the dilemma, is the mocker. Which is your way, priestling? Let me help you. He opens one a crack. Laughter drifts out. A party with dear friends, backslapping and breaking of bread. Now there are crowds listening in rapt attention. A hundred leaping cripples, love, Fellowship, healing, blessing. Surely this is the door. This is the door to joy. The door slams shut, and the blanket of night instantly smothers the sound. Silence reverberates blackly. The mocker smirks, or consider the alternative. He opens the other door. A deeper darkness creeps through. A chill spreads. Evil stalks out, invisible yet tangible. Pain lurks beyond, abandonment too, a world of hatred funneled onto the point of a nail. The sun prostrates himself in the dirt. Ki im haltizana bin hara, deliver me from evil. Again and again the words muttered, whispered, groaned, shouted, pleading for another way, balling up his love and courage in one hand and weighing it against his purity in the other. He knows joy to be his destiny, but it is slipping from his grasp. Finally, his tears subside, replaced by the bold whisper of submission, Yasha Retsuncha, thy will be done. The mocker watches frigidly. The sun looks up at last, lifting his earth-soiled face to the deep darkness still spewing from the open door. Obeying an unspoken command, he staggers to his feet, steps forward, peers into the abyss. For a long time, the darkness bites unrelentingly. He continues to watch. Finally, a glimmer, a shard of light cuts through the darkness from deeper recesses behind. He leans forward, straining to see into that sliver. Suddenly, the light breaks through. A kaleidoscope of images tumble towards him. Creation, groaning no longer, restored, made new. Millions of faces, lives made whole. The smile of the father, delighting with his, delighted with his obedient son. 
the victory parade in heaven, leading the hostages home, the songs of the angels. Too late, the mocker sees the danger. He slams the door shut. Night envelops the garden again, but the sun embraces the darkness. The garden is silent once more, the myrtle trees heavy with fragrance. The sun, the soldiers, the betrayer, all departed. In breathless hush it waits, as it has for centuries, but the waiting is almost over. The Son of God has chosen the bleak grey path to joy. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So says Hebrews chapter 12. Here's a different story, a little shorter. It was the 16th of October, 1555, in Oxford, just outside Balliol College, when two men, Nick, who'd once been a bishop of London, and Hugh, who once time been a bishop of Worcester, they were tied to some wooden poles and they had wood heaped up around them. And then that pyre was lit. And Nick's brother-in-law foolishly put on some more, some more wood, some more faggots in the hope of, to speed their death. But actually it just slowed things down and it meant they burnt extremely slowly and were in great pain. Hugh, Hugh Latimer, is recording as having said to Nick, Nick Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And that's just one story about of many, many that we can collect it over church history and from today, of brave Christians who have gone to their deaths bravely, overflowing with faith. Some even managing to worship, to praise God in the midst of it. How different that is, though, from what we just saw of Jesus. For he began to be sorrowful and troubled, verse 37 said. Verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he told his disciples. It's Luke, I think it is, has it records that he sweated as though drops of blood within his anguish. I wonder if you've ever wondered about why Jesus approached his death so differently than so many of his followers have subsequently. And that's an important thing to wonder, because it's asking that question that takes you right into the heart of the gospel, right into understanding uh, the cross. This is uh, a question that John Stott has asked. He writes in his book, um, the, the 
the cross of Jesus, I think it's called. Um, yeah, the cross of Christ, he writes. We turn back to that lonely figure in the Gethsemane olive orchard, prostrate, sweating, overwhelmed with grief and dread, begging, if possible, to be spared the drinking of the cup. The martyrs were joyful, but he was sorrowful. They were eager, but he was reluctant. How can we compare them? How could they have gained their inspiration from him if he had faltered when they had not? He goes on to answer his own question. He talks about, he says, the cup from which Jesus shrank was something different. It symbolized neither the physical pain of being flogged and crucified or the mental distress of being despised and rejected by his own people. But rather, it was the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world. In other words, of enduring the divine judgment which those sins deserved. Jesus' death was unique, totally unlike the death that any Christian has to face. Because horrendous though it was physically, in terms of its suffering and its death, more importantly, it was facing, bearing the Father's wrath that we might never have to. Um, and we're, we're going to try and underst- to understand Gethsemane, to understand the cross. We're going to un- try and unpack that a little bit this morning. Um, to understand what actually is, or was, rather, the cost of us being reconciled to God. If you if we look at the passage in Matthew, um, one subject which sort of arises naturally from that passage in which uh, leads into, helps us to understand the uniqueness of Jesus' death, is the whole question of its necessity. You remember in verse 13, 39, uh, Matthew says, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. I think it's Mark's gospel that has it... Uh, even more starkly, he says, Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. It's just like, you know, if this cup is possible, take it from me. Um, but not my will, but your will be done. So, you know, you find Jesus there reminding himself of the character and the power of God. Just like we do when we pray. Um, he was reminding himself, God, all things are possible with you. Let this cup be taken from me. And I think you have to conclude that if it was possible, wouldn't the Father have done so? And of course, as we read in Matthew, just a few verses later, after Jesus had struggled through the prayer and was about to be arrested and his disciples were, well, one of them at least was, was uh, had taken to the sword, to use the sword. He says, Do you not think I can call on my father and he at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way? The, even at that late date, even after the arrest, it could all have been overturned. It, was, it, there was a, there was a, it wasn't a physical... Um, necessity to the cross 
It wasn't as though the swirl of political events had got beyond Jesus and out of his control and he was just swept up in events and he couldn't get out of it at this stage. It was to fulfill the scriptures. But it wasn't just to fulfill the scriptures. We, want, we, need, we, we can look behind that. We can see the more profound reason, if you like, the reason why the scriptures had been written in the first place that made the cross necessary. In the next chapter in Matthew, in, in chapter 27, on the cross, we find, um, we find, well, I'll read verse 39 to 42. It says, Those who passed by uh, hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from from the cross and we will believe in him. Notice the irony of the mockers. He saved others, but he can't save himself. No doubt what they were talking about were his healings. They, they, They were casting aspersions on the power. You know, he healed others, but it's, it, it can't have been that great a healing, so he can't even heal himself from... Clearly, they thought them, they were being so clever. Yet what Matthew wants us, wants his readers to pick up, is the deeper irony. You know, they are right. He saved others, but he can't save himself if he is to save them. In other words, he can't save himself if he is to save others. And that was the real necessity for Jesus to to have to face this suffering. I think when Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. There's sort of like implicitly there. And, and, you know, if it is possible for us still to save the people that you've given me, um, then... Let it be done some other way. But there was no other way. You see, it's impossible for the Father to just forgive. If God were just to forgive, it would be a, effectively become a moral monster. If you think about it, when, when we are seriously hurt by someone, or when we see someone seriously hurt, some atrocity be done, some terrible injustice, don't we feel that, you know, we, that we cry out for justice, we cry out for the perpetrators to pay for what they've done. It, sort of, there's a, a, a feeling of injustice about, a, you know, a feeling of unhappiness of, of, with injustice, of unrighteousness. We, we cry out for things to be put right. If God was prepared to ignore such things, actually it would be awful. It would show a kind of moral indifference that actually would be diabolical. One of my favourite uh, 
writers and theologians, Bible scholars, Don Carson writes in one of his books, where evil occurs, it must be paid back or God himself is affronted. If God forever overlooks evil, ostensibly on the grounds that he is loving and forbearing, is he not also portraying the fact that he is pathetically unconcerned about injustice? And that would be the situation if God chose the easy the easy approach of just forgiving, just letting things be. But it's easy to fall in, people do fall into this trap of thinking that's how God behaves. They think it's just his job, or that's what he always does, or because of his loving, merciful nature, he will, of course, forgive me. But reconciliation costs There is a moral imperative that since God is holy, righteous, and just, sin has its punishment. And to communicate this, isn't this, God has sort of structured history to understand the cross, to understand this point, understand what it's all about. In Leviticus, think about, he gave the Mosaic law, he worked through Israel to to teach these things, and and in the Mosaic law, in in, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 17, it says, For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And uh, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 verse 22 picks up on this and he says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness. All of this is, is teaching. It's a, it's, a, it's a animal after animal after animal, bull after lamb after bull, had to die to, to, to set up this pattern that we would understand the ramifications of sin and of how it must be punished. There must, to, if there is to be forgiveness, there has to be atonement. Yes, God is loving. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God does forgive. But there is a price to pay for this, to make this reconciliation possible. And it shows the depth of God's love and his mercy and his grace that he was prepared to pay that cost. He was prepared to resist his son's prayer in the garden. So this brings us to, well, what's happening on the cross then? What, you know, how does the atonement work? You know, and Christians through the centuries have put forward uh, only a relatively small handful, but a, a, a fair few different attempts to try and articulate how the cross works, how atonement comes about. Um... There are some theories that say the cross changes how we feel. Some of them say it's how we feel about sin, or maybe it's how we feel about God, or whatever. But unfortunately, these these theories are, they're they're sort of inadequate. They're subjective theories, theories that say it's all about um, subjective changes in us. And at best, they could, they're only partial truths. 
Um, I mean, yes, it's true. Seeing that Jesus was prepared to go to the cross should make us feel differently about sin. That's the effect, you know, it should influence how we feel about, uh, about sin. It should make, change how we feel about God and his love for us. It should draw out love from us. But ultimately, if the cross was only changing us, then that, that, shows, it's, that shows what is a shallow, superficial analysis of what's wrong. That is a complete misunderstanding of the nature of sin and what it, what it means to, to have sinned against the holy God. For on the cross, God was changing something objective about our status before him. And sort of biblical scholars nowadays, if you, if you read them, they, they encourage us to pay very careful attention to the different kinds of images, the different metaphors, the different, different kinds of language which are used to talk about the cross. And rather than sort of just mash them into one, into one thing, it, they, 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 they encourage you to tease out the different things. And what you find, that there are terms about the cross and salvation that are relationship terms, things like peace, like reconciliation, the one we've been focusing on. There are, term, there are terms of, there's images to do with health. For by his stripes we are healed. There's also marketplace terms. Terms to do with the marketplace. Ransom, redemption, paying the price. In, uh, in Roman society, um, what would happen was if you ran into financial difficulties, rather than declaring yourself bankrupt, you would have to sell yourself to, into slavery, effectively, into your debtors. Um, but if you were lucky, you would have a richer, a rich relative down next village over, who, when he heard about your, you being, uh, having to sell yourself into slavery, would come along and would buy you back. And the way it worked was, um, that he would go and give the money to a temple, and the temple, uh, after taking a small cut, would take the money and buy the slave from the, the slave owner, and you would, that person would then be freed, except that he would normally be the slave of the God who had redeemed him, who had ransomed him. Um, and, but, but to all imperfect purposes, he'd be free again. But sort of the... the, the the metaphor is that, that, that he's now a slave to, uh, to the new God. And that's really, you can see how that applies to us. We have been bought out from our slavery into God's service through Jesus paying the price. But, uh, you know, sort of important though that whole metaphor, that market language is, you can't push it too far. The Bible never says who... Um, who the price was paid to. That's sort of pushing the metaphor beyond, beyond what it should be. The, the, <clears throat> there's another whole load of terms about the cross, talking about it in terms of temple language. And here probably the most important word is, is uh, propitiation. That's what it was in, in some versions of the Bible. It, in Greek it's hilasterion. In the NIV, for some strange reason, it's sacrifice of atonement. Um, 
What it means is, it means that a sacrifice has taken place that turns aside wrath. So, in, in this case, the wrath of God is taken. God is propitiated. It's, taken, it's turned aside from us to Jesus. Um, then there's courtroom terms. Justification falls into that one particularly. It's being declared righteous in God's sight. So, there is a, a new legal status that arises for us out of the cross. And of course, there's victory terms as well, which we love to sing, of course, don't we, at, at uh, Easter. Up from the grave he arose, a triumph over his foes. Um, and yes, the cross is a victory over Satan, over the accuser of the brethren. But there are some who you know, try, want to pick and pick, select certain ones and suppress others. And some people are, are focusing on just picking the victory one to understand the cross. Well, it's okay, but it's not, it's, the cross isn't, it, it doesn't, it's the victory one doesn't stand alone. You can't really do that. Yes, the cross is a victory. Yes, it is a victory over Satan, but it's not an exercise in raw power. Satan is defeated because Satan's ground for accusing us is undermined. We are now legally justified, declared right in God's sight. So, how can, how can Satan accuse us? He has no grounds. He's defanged. That's that. So, in some ways, the victory model is based upon the temple model. And they all work together. And it's really interesting to pay real careful attention as you read through the, the New Testament, to pay attention to how these different models interact and relate. They're all... They are all part of this great description of how Jesus, as our substitute, died in our place to redeem us, to propitiate the Father, to redeem us back from slavery, to give us reconciliation and peace, to, bring us, to give us healing. To understand it properly, you have to have a, an understanding of the Trinity as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit as one, and as three. So, if you're to understand the fairness of the cross, you can't have Jesus as one person and the Father as another. Because, yes, there is something rather inappropriate about a third, a, a, you know, a, a third person paying our debt. But actually, what it is, it's the triune God taking the punishment upon himself. Um, you know, in eternity past, God the Father set his love on us. And God the Son chose to be our Redeemer. And in time... They brought, it, they, they brought themselves to this place of Gethsemane and then onto the cross. And they, 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 they executed that, that plan. They brought it to fruition. And now the Holy Spirit works, bringing these, his people, God's chosen people, to himself, bringing them to faith. Um, yeah, so I was saying it's an objective change in our legal status for all who are in Christ by faith alone. 
We are counted righteous in God's sight. And it's this new legal basis which is the basis of our reconciliation with the Father. So let's just remind ourselves, the cost, the cost of the Son, not primarily physical, although there was some, of course, but it was bearing the Father's anger. They had, he had never seen the Father's frown upon him, directed to him in all eternity to there. It's God's holy, principled, judicial punishment. And in anticipation of that, Jesus quailed. But I'm not entirely sure if the cost isn't even greater to the Father. For surely no parent, no good parent, could withhold the blessings of the kind Jesus asked for in the garden in the way they were asked, from a beloved child, without great cost to himself. No wonder in John's Gospel it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. How great that love must be that he he stayed silent, that he didn't send the angels himself So what's the implication about the cost being paid, this cost for our reconciliation? Well, I wonder if, there's lots of things you could say here, but I just want to try and make it personal to us. So I wonder if we could sort of pause, bow our heads, and just dwell for a moment together now on this cost that Jesus paid on this love that Jesus had for us. In the human realm, we know that a child who is sure of his parents' love flourishes. So let us, how much more, if we're aware of this love of the Father to us, how much more we should flourish for how purer and stronger and reliable is this Father's love for us, Jesus' love for us. Heavenly Father, you love us individually. You love us by name. It's love for us. We are known in eternity. We are known in the courts of heaven itself. We are known by you. And it's out of love for us, individually and named, that you stayed silent in the garden. And it's in love for us, Lord Jesus, that you submitted to the Father's will and prayed with the understanding that the only 
the only possibilities you were interested in were possibilities that still saved us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Lord, help us to feel that love and to live in the strength of that love. Lord, not that we are lovely or lovable, not that there's anything special about us, but there's something special about your love. I also just want to draw out the implications of this cost being paid for our reconciliation to any here who maybe don't know this salvation we're talking about, this reconciliation with God. The price has been paid. Reconciliation. Now is the day of reconciliation. The door stands open. There is peace. There is... You can come back to God now and it is... It's not cheap, but the cost has been paid. So turn. Turn to Jesus in faith. It's worth it. It's... just necessary so come i urge you if you don't know jesus come and seek him come and find life come and find what's so important that this price was paid amen